0: Lizzie Presser reports for ProPublica. She lives in Brooklyn, but she spent a lot of her summer in Kansas in a little town called Coffeeville.
1: Coffeyville is this kind of old historic town in southeast Kansas, so right over the Oklahoma border. The downtown is lined with these kind of gorgeous turn-of-the-century brick buildings, but all the old department stores and restaurants and boutiques are shuttered. Coffeeville
0: has a poverty rate that's twice the national average. In the last few years, Amazon has shut down a local distribution warehouse. John Deere laid off workers,
1: too. And the largest employer is an oil refinery, and the second largest employer is the hospital.
0: The hospital is what brought Lizzie here. Because when the people who live here can't afford to pay that hospital, a lot of the time, the hospital... Takes them to court. So can you describe what it's like on a hearing day when you come in and people are there to figure out what's happened with their medical debt?
1: Yeah. So when I went um, the last Tuesday of July, so 90 people had been summoned. And this is a town of 9,000. Only about 35 showed up. And many of the debtors are sick and you can see it. Um, They're in their pajamas. Uh, They are wearing eye patches or bandages. They are limping. In one case, I saw a guy in a wheelchair who had a wound vacuum pumping so that he could get liquid to his wounds. He had just had a heart attack and he was called into court. Um, They sit around for a while and they trade stories. And even on my first day there, people were trading stories about people they knew who had been to jail.
0: They'd been to jail because if you miss a couple of these court appearances, a warrant can be issued for your arrest.
1: And a lot of debtors actually, they, they think about it as jail for medical debt, even though if you look at it and break it down, it's jail for non-appearance. Right. But, but the way they see it is like, oh, I know these people who have gone to jail for medical debt. And, and they do. They know people who have gone to jail after they have been sued for unpaid medical bills.
0: The kind of debt these people are struggling with, it's common, one in three Americans have a bill that's gone to collection. And the majority of those bills are medical. But debtor's prison, it's been against the law since 1833. Which is why Lizzie was sitting in this court. She wanted to know, how does this work? When the judge walks into this room,
1: what does he tell these people? The judge asks them to take an oath. And then he says to each one of them that they need to talk to the collection's attorney. And after that, they are free to go. And then he leaves the room. He leaves the room. And what you have is essentially a judgeless courtroom. And it's not on the record. And no one in the three weeks I was there had an attorney with them. So these debtors also don't understand what their rights are or how to assert them and the debt collectors or the collections attorneys are sitting at the front of the room, and it feels as if they are representatives of the court for some debtors. Today on the show,
0: what three weeks in a small-town courthouse in Coffeeville, Kansas, can tell you about the high price of American healthcare. What's happening there may seem extreme, but the truth is, there are courthouses like this all over the country. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 US-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person, anytime, day or night. Yep. That means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When you hear a story about someone who's landed in court for debt, sometimes it's easy to feel like, well, that wouldn't happen to me. But you don't really know until you're in it. You don't really know until it's your kid who gets sick, and then it's your family that's behind on their medical bills. And somewhere along the line, a collections agency starts looking out for you. That's what happened to this guy Lizzie met in Coffeyville. His name is Tress Biggs. And he told her this story about how he learned he was behind on his bills in the first place.
1: Tress Biggs was out hunting in 2008 with a bunch of friends, um, and he had taken his son out with him. His son was six years old, and a year before he had been diagnosed with leukemia. Tress wanted to spend some time with his son and to give him an opportunity to be outside. When they were out hunting, they saw a game warden come through. And what did the game warden say? They were dove hunting, and he wanted to make sure that Tress was licensed to be dove hunting. Um, He wasn't, but he also wasn't (laughs) about to start running. And when the warden... Um, checked his license, he asked Tress to step inside his truck. And he told Tress that there was a warrant out for his arrest. Did Tress have any reason to think there'd be a warrant out for his arrest? Tress had no idea why or how there could be a warrant out for his arrest. He had never been to jail. He had never been in trouble with the law. And it made no sense to him. So what happened after that? He,
0: he, I guess he can't take his son with him to jail. So...
1: What does he do? Tress steps out of the car and he asks a friend to take his son home to his wife. And he gets back in the car and he's driven actually over the county line to the jailhouse in Montgomery County in Kansas. And what happens then? He gets fingerprinted and uh, booked into the county jail, absolutely humiliated. Um, He's told to strip. He's told to brace himself for a bottle or a tub, really, of delousing liquid And in that process, he's told that the warrant has been issued because he failed to appear in court for a hearing related to medical debt. When he heard that, what did he think? He was furious and so frustrated and and humiliated. And he felt really small and as if this kind of tragedy that had befallen his family wasn't going to leave him anytime soon. Um, He also didn't have the money to pay bail. So part of the problem was that when he was booked, he was booked on a $500 cash bail bond, which meant that he needed to come up with money that he didn't have. He said he had about $50 to his name at that point. Um, And this is a hardworking man. He was working two jobs. He was working at a lumberyard and on construction sites about 70 hours a week. His wife had had to quit her job to take care of Lane full time because that's what Lane's doctors had insisted. Um, This is a family in crisis. And for the past year, the way that the family had survived was by focusing on priorities. And priorities were Lane's health. They were feeding the kids um, it was making sure that there was enough money to keep the electric bills paid and the water, the water running um, and food on the table. And they had missed two court dates for their medical debt hearings. Um, and that's what had landed Tress in jail.
0: I wonder if you can explain a little bit how Tress got into the
1: situation where he had so much debt. He made about $25,000 a year. And in order to be covered by Medicaid, he would have needed to make $12,000 a year. This is for a man supporting a family of six. So he couldn't qualify for Medicaid, and he also could not afford private insurance at the time. Part of what's interesting to me about your reporting is that he eventually
0: got insurance, but you make the point that one of the side effects of the ACA is that the cost of healthcare has gone up at
1: the individual level, at other levels. Yeah. I'm, so I'm not sure that it's a side effect of the ACA. But I think that when we talk about the Affordable Care Act, um, what we don't talk about is that it did nothing to contain costs, right? So it absolutely increased the number of people who were covered by insurance across the country. But it didn't contain the costs of health care. So Tress did end up getting insurance, private insurance, by his employer in the past few years. But he has a $5,000 deductible. And who can pay $5,000 out of pocket? Um, And that was something I was hearing repeatedly in court. So Tress was one person who I spoke with in court, but I spoke with dozens of patients. And some of them just simply had deductibles they could not afford. And that meant that when they were hit with the $2,000 bill, they were falling into the same kind of debt that Tress did initially.
0: So someone like Tress Biggs, he's been in and out of debt collection for his medical bills for more than a decade. He's tried everything he can to get out from under them. He's filed for bankruptcy. He's established payment plans. He's gotten health insurance. But he still can't afford the bills. Not all the time. Once, he thought he was done paying. But he got called into court anyway, over fees and interest. All these appearances in front of a judge, you can see
1: how they would pile up, become unmanageable. So if one person on one bill can be called in four times a year to do what's called a debtor's exam, and that means that they're testifying to what they earn and what they own so that a debt collector can decide what to do with that information. What will happen is a debtor can be called in even if they live two and a half hours away, if they cannot afford childcare care to leave their kids at home, if they cannot take paid days off of work. Um, If they cannot afford to take unpaid days off of work. And so debtors will miss repeated hearings. And if they miss two consecutive hearings, they can be put in jail. The judge will say that this is a way to uphold the order of the court. But what ends up happening is that they are given cash, they are made to pay cash bail, $500 cash bail. And if they pay that money, which they typically do, that money will almost always be applied to their debt. And so the collectors take that cash bail and they take a cut of it if they are paid on commission as well. And so in that moment, you begin to see that this jailing is functionally a way to collect a debt, not to make someone to appear. Right. Bail is typically paid so that once you appear, you receive it back. So
0: you can see in that description how the debt collection and the justice system are kind of braided together in this way almost inseparable but you can understand too that for a hospital or for a doctor who's owed a lot of money by someone like trust biggs they'd say i need to get paid somehow what struck me about your article was that it lays out this system that is functioning completely normally really kind of as designed everyone is responding to whatever they're being incentivized to do. It's just that when you look at it closely, it looks really, really unfair.
1: Well, I think your point about medical providers needing to get paid is also a really important one, right? So I was looking at Coffeyville, the, the hospital there, the Coffeeville Regional Medical Center is the only hospital within about a 40 mile radius. And that's partly because three nearby hospitals have closed in the past several years. Some of them cite Kansas's rejection of Medicaid expansion as a as a key cause. So so hospitals especially rural hospitals are struggling to stay afloat and this is one way in which hospitals are trying to recoup costs. And we should say that if Kansas had expanded
0: Medicaid, it would mean a lot more people had coverage. It would mean that a place like the hospital in Coffeeville would have a guaranteed income stream and they wouldn't necessarily be able to bring people into court. Or they wouldn't need to. That's exactly right. When you spoke to the local hospital about why they
1: aggressively pursued these debts, what did they tell you? The local hospital told me that they are struggling, like many rural hospitals, and that what they are trying to do is keep their doors open, essentially. They also told me that they offer financial assistance um, and that they have provided over a million dollars in charity care. In Coffeyville... The orders of
0: the court are determined by one man, a judge named David Casement.
1: So David Casement was appointed as a magistrate judge in the 80s, but he had never taken a course in law and didn't have a law degree. And by the way... How does that happen? It's not uncommon in low-level courts that you see judges without law degrees. And David Casement was actually a cattle rancher. When he started this job... He had never been in a courtroom before. And it was attorneys who were telling him that he really did have the power of contempt to put people in jail if they weren't obeying his orders. And that was one other thing that I found quite startling in my reporting, which is that I would sit in the courtroom. And if people didn't appear, the judge would turn to the collections attorneys and say, that's a bench warrant if you want it. And when I asked the collections agencies um, or the collections attorneys, you know, how do you decide who who gets arrested in these cases? They said, oh, we don't. That is a decision of the court and the court is just following the process of the law. If someone doesn't appear, they will issue a warrant. So one's pointing at the other, the other's pointing at the first. Exactly. And I would go to the judge and say the same thing. You know, how, how is this working? What I'm looking, what I'm seeing is that you are saying to the collectors, they can have a warrant if they want one. He said, that's right. And what I'm doing is I'm giving them my blessing.
0: You spoke to a lawyer, too, a guy named Michael Hassenplug, who shows up in court and he's one of those guys at the front of the courtroom meeting with defendants. Tell me a little bit about him.
1: So Michael Hasenblug moved to Coffeyville in 1980, and he had worked his way through law school, and he began working with a firm. And at some point early on in the 80s, one of the lawyers who was in charge of collections went on vacation and handed him the collections filings and said, look over this, will you? And Hasenblug says that he did, and what he saw um, was that the firm that he was working for wasn't doing nearly enough with those collections cases and could be doing a lot more. And he understood that other attorneys kind of thought of collections as beneath them or as petty work, but for him, he really identified an opportunity. What he saw was that other attorneys kind of thought of collections as beneath them, petty work. And for him, he said, no, this is actually an opportunity to rev up our revenue stream. And he began to computerize their debt collections cases and keep track of them. And when he would litigate, he would also then follow up. And so at first, he was calling debtors in more frequently than once every three months. He would call debtors to reappear after he got a judgment, according to Judge Casement, sometimes monthly. And he would make sure that those debtors were coming in repeatedly so that he could tell if there was a change in their financial situation and ask for more. So the picture I'm getting is that you have a judge
0: who's a little relaxed— And rushing in to kind of fill that power vacuum are lawyers who are very incentivized to collect money. So, you know, they're happy to tell the judge, hold this person in contempt of court, because then once they get in jail, I'm going to get a little cut of that bail. And they're happy to show up week after week and work out payment plans because those little bits of money add up for them. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think different collections attorneys have different strategies. But Michael Hasenplug certainly follows that line. He's chosen to follow up on litigation in this way so that he's asking debtors to come to court repeatedly. Other collections attorneys aren't necessarily as aggressive.
0: What if the judge just refused to participate in all this, like said, listen, I'm not going to have people be arrested for their medical debt. If you can't pay, we'll work out a payment plan. You don't have to come four times a year, maybe make it once a year. Could he make those kinds of changes? Absolutely.
1: So the judge has a lot of power and a lot of discretion in these cases, which is one of the reasons why focusing on a, a judge who wasn't educated in law school, I thought was interesting to me, because this is common. The judge can decide how frequently They think a debtor should be coming to court. The judge can decide that he or she does not want to use his authority of contempt, his contempt authority, to put someone in jail. That is a decision of the court. The judge can decide that he's not going to require a $500 cash bail. Instead, he can say they can sign a sheet of paper and promise to appear in court. The judge has a ton of discretion in these cases. Does he know that? Yes, he is aware of that.
0: I guess I'm struggling to figure out the motivation of the judge. I guess I get the motivation of a lawyer. They're making money. So I get that, in a way. I guess what I don't understand is how the judge fits into that. Because, as you've said, he has so much discretion
1: in this process. I really liked David Casement. Judge Casement was a thoughtful clearly gentle um man who was who was interested in talking with me about what i was finding and what i found to be problematic i mean he did not shy away from these very questions that i put to him he doesn't want to put debtors in jail i don't think that these this is some kind of malicious intent um kansas courts are some of the most underfunded courts in the country um He's trying to move through a docket as quickly as possible. And I think what ends up happening is that the debt collection attorneys end up speeding that up or making it more efficient for him if he gets to kind of cede some of that control.
0: Hmm. There was one other detail that really stuck with me, which was that this judge who you spoke with, who's a Republican, he says, listen. I don't know if I want to say this out loud, but I think maybe we need some kind of universal health care.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that he's realized in this position is that he said very clearly, our health care system is not working if this is my job. Um, And he said to me as a Republican, I would probably be hung for saying this, but we need health care for everybody and to be able to contain some of those costs. And so even he felt as if looking at the system really closely he was able to see that the healthcare industry, the health, our healthcare system as it's built right now just isn't going to work. And and tweaking it around the edges isn't the answer.
0: Lizzie Presser, thank you so much for coming in.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Lizzie Presser is a reporter for ProPublica. All right, that's the show. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, Danielle Hewitt, and Mara Silvers. Once you are done with this show, which you are right now, I've got a suggestion for you. Go on over to the Slow Burn feed because today they are launching their third season. It's a whole new idea. It's a whole new host. It's gonna be great. It's all about Tupac and Biggie. Check it out. I'm Mary Harris. I will talk to you tomorrow. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
1: Laundry? Ooh, a book club.